This week on Myths and Legends, you'll meet the nicest knight in the world and see why that's a horrible thing for him, his family, his people, and his kingdom. The creature this time is a Scottish one where, if you hear voices in the woods that say they're going to eat you and kidnap your children, maybe listen to them. This is Myths and Legends, episode 343, Mr. Nice Knight. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story is what happens when you're a nice knight. Too nice, it seems, because that's how you go broke, and are unable to be a knight and really all that nice. This story was originally found in manuscripts dating back to the 1400s, which means the tale itself is likely even older. I linked to the earliest version I could find in the show notes. We're going to jump in with a knight, Sir Amatus, having a very uncomfortable conversation with his accountant. Look, so, oof, okay. It's not that I thought money was magic per se, but like magic, I never really understood where it came from or how it worked, and I just liked that it brought cool stuff and that I could be really generous and nice to people. Now you're telling me I'm, I'm broke? Siramatis paced back and forth. His right-hand man, the person who looked after his book, said, well, not broke, just great? Suramata said, and whistled off to the stables for a hunt. Two weeks later, it was Suramatas coming to see his right-hand man. What was all this about the money being gone? The people are saying that he can't pay them. Why can't he pay them? The, the advisor said, because he was broke. You said I wasn't broke. I asked you, am I broke? And you said, not broke, Suramatas yelled. The advisor said that there was an ellipsis. He was about to add that he wasn't broke yet, but things were dire. Suramatis said he didn't understand. He was so generous. Everyone who asked him for stuff, he gave it. Isn't that how you should be? Isn't that how God wants them to be? The people provide for him, work for him, and he gives to them? The advisor said yes. That was, well, actually part of the problem. Super, super great that he was generous. Just not that great for Suramatis. Or his many, many creditors. Suramata said, okay, let's do this. Band-Aid off. How much did he owe? The advisor gave him the sum. Well, if he sold the estate, the horses, his other holdings, he might be able to cover most of it. At least I get to keep my rank among the peerage. Can always rebuild, Suramata said. The advisor winced. That uh, sum that he just gave was under the impression that he would be selling his rank. He would no longer be Suramata's. Just... Amatus. Sir Amatus said, okay, uh, hmm, counterpoint, what if he ran away, took a bunch of cash and bolted on his horse, huh? The advisor said, well, that was an option, but he, the advisor, would probably report Sir Amatus to the magistrate. As soon as Sir Amatus rode off, since Amatus still owed him and the others on the farm half a year's pay, that would lead to his peers hunting him down and dragging him back to the village in which he grew up, but as a criminal. Ooh, bad look, yeah. 
Modest then narrowed his eyes. What if I killed you? The advisor closed the book. That was certainly an option. Frankly, though, he didn't think Amadis had it in him to be a cold-blooded murderer. Sir Amadis' shoulders slumped. Yeah, the advisor was right. Okay, how could they get this started? How could he sell everything? In the end, it wasn't everything. Amadis lost his house, his land, his title, and his servants, but he got to keep the clothes on his back, a single horse, and he was able to keep enough money to pay for a servant, about 30 pounds. He could use that cash to set him up with a small shack and figure things out. But he would be doing so far, far away from his former house. Sir Amadis, well, just Amadis now, Amadis wasn't a proud man, but it was a tough pill to swallow, living among the people he had once ruled over. And though he had been generous and kind, he couldn't deal with the snickers and the looks, the laughs, the way people in the pub became silent when he walked in. So he left. He didn't know where he would go, but wherever it was, it had to be better than here. So he rode. He would stop on the side of the path to hunt or camp. He slowly made his way across the countryside and was able to preserve most of the money he had been able to keep after selling off his life. Amadis found that he was alone, not counting his page, but surprisingly, not unhappy. It was a quiet life, but he had his needs met, and there was a certain richness to falling asleep under the stars. Sure, he didn't have the piles of gold, the manor, and the lands that his family had for generations, but gold required strong doors and guards. Manors had leaky roofs and rotting beams, and fields required tending. For the first time in his life, he was free of the responsibilities that his parents had left him with. All it took was losing everything, and oh my gosh, what was that smell? It was horrible. Like rotting beef stuck in an old sock soaked in curdled milk just right under his nose. What in the world? He sat up. Oh no, it was on the wind. Whatever was causing the smell wasn't far, but sometime in the past few hours, the wind had changed, and Amadis was in the path of the odor. He tried to cover his mouth with a cloth, but the smell seeped in. Wind carried it away at times, but most of the night it hit him dead on. It was miserable. At first light, he broke camp and rode, but no matter which way he turned, the smell followed. He sniffed his own armpits. Nope, wasn't him. Hey, are you stinky or something? He turned to his servant. Well, I mean, more than usual, middle ages and all, you know. That's actually an unhelpful stereotype, the page said. People in the Middle Ages did in fact bathe somewhat regularly, wash their hands, face, and clothes, and they had a basic level of hygiene. Thanks for that, and I know, Amada said. Just, you've been carrying my stuff, and we've been on the road for weeks now, so... Oh, yeah, the page chimed in. No, in that sense, we both reek, but whatever that is, that's not either of us. Seeing as there was no escape, they turned and sought out the smell. A small parish church stood at the center of a village, a village that was shut up in a futile effort to keep out the smell. In the darkness of the morning, a chapel of stone and wood shone with the light of a candle. Amadis tied up his horse and entered the church alongside his page. A widow was weeping, and the smell was so bad that Amadis could barely stand. But he saw the source. A body. A man laid on the table in the church, and the woman was crying out to God. The man was just 
rotting in the open air. She heard Amadis in the back of the church and turned. When she saw that it was just some night, she turned back to the body. Uh, hi, Amadis said. He didn't super know the customs around here, but shouldn't they probably be burying that guy? With these words, tears burst anew from the eyes of the woman. The man wouldn't be buried, couldn't be buried, not without paying his debts. Amata said that that was ridiculous. He demanded, oh, oh wait, he couldn't do that anymore. He was no longer a knight. He turned to the men guarding the body. What about asking nicely? Where did their boss live? Honestly, I'm probably spending more ensuring that he doesn't get buried than I would just cutting my losses and burying the guy. But you know what this is about? Sending a message, Amada said. No, sending a mess. Oh, wait, you said sending a message. Yeah, that's it. The merchant said, as the servants carted in more flowers and slathered him with more cologne. Amadas had met guys like him. Guys who wear too much cologne, sure, but also guys who would spend a pound to recover a shilling. Amadas would have forgiven the debt of the grieving widow so that they could bury her rotting husband, but maybe that's what got him in this situation. The merchant knew of Amadas, and despite the former knight's misfortune, he invited Amadas to dinner a dinner in a room shut up as tight as possible, surrounded by flowers and perfume. It didn't really help. What do I need to do to make this right? Amadis asked. The dead man owes me 30 pounds. No offense, though, but why? The merchant asked. This wasn't the traveler's town. He could just move on and let the people here learn their lesson about predatory lending and high-interest loans. He'll lie there until he's nothing for all I care, the merchant said. And then when she dies of grief, the dogs will chew on both their bones. I'll drag them out to the field myself. Amadis felt the weight of the money at his side. He knew what made more sense. To use the money for himself. To survive when he had nothing, rather than giving it to a man who didn't need it, for a woman he didn't know. Still, he was in the position to help someone when they needed it. It was cruel to leave a widow weeping when he could do something. A man rotting, unable to move on. The money jingled as Amadis plopped the bag down on the desk. This should cover it. The merchant laughed. This was the entirety of the purse then. Well, if Amadis was going to deprive the people of the village of a lesson, then at least Amadis would suffer. Amadis rose immediately. The merchant grinned, really? Leaving so soon? This might be Amadis' last meal for a while. Amadis said he would rather starve than dine with a man like the merchant. It was only mostly true. He was very hungry, but it sounded cool, and it was a solid exit. We'll see Amadis continue to make super generous and incredibly irresponsible financial decisions, but that will be right after this. Amadis wasn't generous for the foot hugs. He told the widow it was fine. He was happy to help. The parish sexton and the servants that drew the short straws were arguing about who was going to lift this guy into the casket. 
but they ended up settling things with a very respectful role. The whole village came out in celebration of Amadis' generosity. Also, that the smell was gone. Actually, it was mostly that the smell was gone, but they threw a feast, because it was probably the first time anyone had felt like feasting in 16 weeks. The town saw him and the page off, and they trotted down the road together. Six miles away, Amadis turned his horse to the page. Hey, they, look, they needed to have a talk. Are you serious right now? The page shot back. What? You're firing me, right? The page dropped the pack. Amadis said firing was harsh, more of a downsizing, a layoff. The page groaned and pinched the bridge of his nose. It was the 30 pounds for the dead man, right? That pushed Amadis into the red? So Amadis knew about this for six miles. There's six miles out in the wilderness, and he's walking. Thank you for that. It was the kind, generous thing to do. Amadis threw up his hands. Uh, generous for who, exactly? The page who now had to navigate the English countryside at night, alone, because his boss hadn't thought through the implications of how paychecks work until after he had given away all the money, and they were out in the wilderness? Amadis could see. He dismounted. He took off his armor, and he handed both the armor and the horse to the stunned page, who, despite berating his boss's generosity mere moments prior, was now very, very happy for it. The armor was worth ten pounds. The horse and tack another ten. Amadis gave it all away. The last vestige of the life that had been his. At least this time, though, he had chosen. Still, he couldn't help feeling like he was a disgrace. Like, now that he had nothing, he should just disappear. Hey, buddy, it's, it's okay. You can start again, the page said from atop Amadis' horse, wearing Amadis' armor. He would feel bad for the man, but he was also owed a lot in back pay, so he was keeping both of those things. Amadis cried that now, in this state, he couldn't help anyone. The page said, wait, seriously? He had given away so much that now he was in need of aid and he wanted to give away more? Look, generosity is wonderful, but it also needs to be realistic. Like, this is getting to a pathological level. Amadis still mourned. All his good was done. He should just die now. The page wanted to help, but... Felt like whatever was going on with Amadis was beyond the capabilities of a roadside pep talk. And, unlike Amadis, he saw the value in looking after himself. The page said he was very sorry for all that, and trotted off back toward the formerly stinky town. Are you death? Amadis cried out to the passing lantern. The man slowed. I'm, I'm a white knight, like the opposite of death, a voice called back. Amadis raised his head to ensure this wasn't a barely clever ruse. He saw that it was, in fact, a knight wearing white armor. Oh, literally the symbol of goodness and rescue. Amadis sighed and laid back down. Then his head shot back up. Wait! If you ride your horse over here, I'll adjust. And if you aim it just right, maybe you can bring the hoof down to like my temple or something, Amada said. And he clenched his jaw and closed his eyes. 
okay, I'm I'm not doing that. And even if I wanted to, the horse probably wouldn't do it. But once again, I'm not doing that, the white knight said. Amadis groaned and opened his eyes. He would just lay here and wait for starvation to take him. Or well, a badger or overly aggressive fox or something. It'll probably be wolves first, the white knight said, dismounting from his stallion. Hey, so would it be fair to say that usually people don't lay down in the wilderness waiting to die? The white knight asked. Amadis was willing to concede that that was generally true, though most people still had a purpose on this earth, and his was used up. And what is, or what was, your purpose? The knight asked, digging through his pack to find a meal he had stowed away. Amadis told him the whole tale, how he had been generous, too generous, it seemed, and had lost it all. He just gave his final 30 pounds to a dead man and lost his one servant. Oh, no servants, that is rough, the white knight commiserated. Amada said that now that he had nothing to give, he was nothing. This, he supposed, was his natural end point. He could die here, knowing that he did some good with his life, though probably not enough. Bummer, the white knight shook his head. So, if you had more money, you would just continue to be generous? Amada said, yeah. Didn't really know any other way. The white knight sat back. What if, what if a certain friend had a tip? A way for Amadis to get all the money he could dream of. Would Amadis be generous to, say, the person who gave him that tip? Amadis said he would be generous to anyone in need, no matter what. The white knight asked, what if the person wasn't in need? What if they just wanted more money so they could be generous themselves and give it to the needy, Amadis asked. He thought he was following. Um, sure, the white knight said. Yes, let's go with that. Then the white knight might have worried that Amadis wasn't understanding. Okay, I will tell you how to get a bunch of money, more money than you could ever spend, but in return I want half, okay? The white knight bobbed his head. Amadis sat up. He could be generous again. He looked to the white knight. He wouldn't have to do anything illegal to get the money, would he? The white knight said, not if Amadis saw picking up some items on a beach as illegal. It was like gathering seashells worth hundreds of thousands of pounds. Amadis said, to be frank, he did not actually want to die, so this had obviously been fate. His story, his purpose, it would continue. The white knight smiled. He would have gone to get it himself, he told Amadis, but he was on a quest. It was this whole thing. He didn't add that it was also nice to have someone look after the cash and grow it while he finished up with his quest. And yeah, that was part of the deal. Not just the money, but everything it bought. The white knight would be entitled to half. Only for the tip. This is what we in any business call a bad deal. Wealth is but a loaned gift from God, after all. The original is translated by Edward Foster at the University of Rochester to say, the white knight didn't add that it was also a loaned gift from him, or that the phrase loaned gift is kind of an oxymoron. Still, it was better than waiting to have your head crushed by a horse. So Amada sat up and shook the white knight's hand. He just didn't expect 
so many dead bodies. It was a shipwreck. That's what the seashell metaphor was representing. It wasn't just any shipwreck, but a massive ship overladen with treasure, like a Mel Fisher-sized shipwreck. Amadas did the very on-brand Amadas thing and buried the bodies before going through the cache. But when it came to the cache, he was stunned. There was enough here that he could give and give for the rest of his life and never run out. Still, it was not all his to give. So he camped out on the beach, and while he was at first nervous about people chancing upon him, he was a few miles off the road, and the ocean as far out as he could see was full of rocks, so there was no danger of passing ships. For the following week, he carefully counted and stowed most of the treasure in a nearby cave, designating half for the White Knight. He marked the graves and, wearing a dead man's grand cloak and armor, made his way from the caves with the bag of gold. It took him a few days wandering the wilderness, his food nearly gone, before he chanced upon a hamlet. There, he was able to buy a horse and everything that went along with it. He found some beggars, set them up with some houses, and made his way from town. He also bought a cart, so he could easily transport his treasure. From there, he made his way to a city and, wow, the king said, looking from his pavilion as Amadis won yet another joust. Look at that guy. Golden cloaks, square jaw, square shoulders, knocking everyone off their horses, super rich. Hubba hubba. You know how you've been looking for that guy to force my daughter to marry so we can make some money? The right term is suitor, sir, the king's advisor said. A perfect match with whom she can fall in love. You can't just say the quiet part out loud like that. Sure, whatever, the king said, and then pointed to Sir Amatus. Bring that guy to me. We'll see the return of the White Knight, but that will, once again, be right after this. Amada said that he was flattered, but he just came from a shipwreck and he lost all of his men. The king waved his hands. Nonsense. He asked if the knight paid well. Amada said, well, he was generous to a fault. The king smiled. He said another thing. He had a daughter. If Amadis found her pleasing, a version of this poem says, he could take her as his wife and, upon doing so, would gain half the kingdom. In time, after the king died, Amadis would have all of it. Amadis was really wishing he had sprung for that QuickBooks subscription, and that also he didn't have to wait 600 years for someone to invent QuickBooks and also computers so that he could track what was his and what was the White Knight's, but... Yes, he would see the daughter. And lucky for them, they actually liked each other. Probably loved each other, which was not as common as it should have been in royal marriages, but the poem tells us around year three, they had a son. Amadis, throughout this time, was happy. The kingdom's vast wealth allowed him to be his best, most irresponsible self, but it turned out that feeding and clothing the more impoverished people of the city giving people housing and paying your workers a living wage was good for everyone. The kingdom thrived. Then, one evening, there was a guest at the gate. Even in twilight, he seemed to glow. The white knight. Let him in, Amadis called, clapping. 
He had been looking forward to this day for years. He had been keeping careful accounting of everything that belonged to the White Knight, having the lands assessed and divided. Of course, if it was the White Knight's preference to have other lands and other castles and all that, they could work it out because they were like brother... I don't want your land, the White Knight interrupted, sitting at the table and crossing his arms. He hadn't even touched his wine. He was surly. How did your quest go? Amada smiled, motioning for the servants to switch it out with another wine from another year. They did, but it remained untouched. We're not doing that. I'm not here for small talk. I know I said I wanted half of what you earned with the money, but I don't care about lands and rivers and castles. You told me where the cave was and I'll go get my cut of the shipwreck, but then the White Knight smiled. Amadas smiled in reply, happy that the White Knight seemed happy. The White Knight wasn't that type of happy. I do hear that you were married just after we parted. Could that have been the result of the money from the shipwreck? Amadas laughed nervously. Uh, what? Say I forego everything that's mine. The White Knight circled Amadas with his words, like a wolf closing in on its prey. Say I just want her. Could that be arranged? Amadas finally pushed back. Look, the deal was half. He was more than happy to give half of everything, even his half of the kingdom, but he wouldn't give up her. Oh, I like that better. Yes, the white knight grinned, his eyes wide. You have a son, too, right? I'll take half of both. Amada said, what? How did that work? The white knight said it was pretty obvious. They cut each one of them in half, and he would take his half and leave. Amada said, that's, no, that's horrible. Going back on our deal then, the white knight shook his head. What was it that Amada said? That we were all merely borrowing from God? How would God feel? How would God respond? He gave Amadis all of this, and now Amadis was going back on the deal. The promise that got him the riches so he could continue his mission and give everything away. Okay, take me. Take my life, Amadis said. Not his wife's, not his child's. Sorry, no dice. I won't let you renegotiate this, the White Knight said. The White Knight turned to his attendants. Well, go and do it. Bring them in. The princess and the child were both pulled from bed. You're what? The princess cried out. I made a promise. I made a promise to him, and I made a promise before God. Amadis hung his head. This is ridiculous. Like, no one in this world would expect you to abide by that promise. This is insane, the princess said. When this is retold, we can say she said stuff like, quote, You shall keep your promise by God. For the love of him who died on the cross, you must keep your covenant, which was properly made by dividing me in two. Since Christ wills it, divide me in half. You won me, and I am yours. God forbid that you refuse for my sake, and that I should be the reason that you lose your honor. End quote. Or something like that. We can workshop it. I'm open to notes, the White Knight said. Why would I say that? Why would anyone say that? The princess cried. The white knight drew his sword and placed it in Amadis's hands. It was sharp. It would do the job. First on the wife, then on the child. 
The white knight watched with relish as Amadis's hands shook. Amadis said he must give. He had given his word without realizing the cost. True, but it was still his word. He must stay true to his oath, though he should now have to sacrifice everything. He apologized to his wife, who said she understood and she was more than happy to give her life so he could fulfill a rash oath. No, I didn't, the princess cried out, but Amadis chose not to hear. He took a deep breath and brought the sword down. But before it could hit the wife, it clanged against the white knight's armor when he blocked the blade. Amadis raised the sword again, bringing it down. The white knight blocked it a third time, and the white knight said, for real? Was he really not getting this? It was a test. He wanted to see if Amadis would honor his word and give everything he had to the white knight. Again, Amadis didn't know what the knight meant. Again, the white knight smiled. When Amadis gave it all so that the white knight could be buried, that was a great kindness. Amadis didn't know what he meant. He'd only done that once with the dead man in the village, and <gasps> Amadis gasped. Wait. The white knight nodded. Yes. He wanted to repay the knight with vast wealth, a new home, and apparently a horrible deontological ethical dilemma regarding staying true to your word in the case of a horrible request. And you, the white knight said, extending his hand to the princess. There are few ladies who would serve their lord like this. <laughs> Some would say none. The princess, in my version, said it was still none because can I kill you is not a reasonable request. The white knight turned back to Amadis. His place was no longer in this world. He had only returned to help Amadis. Now he would go back to heaven and stuff. He disappeared, and Amadis was glad that he could be generous with the second half of the estate that he had been keeping. He sent word out to pay off the debt of everyone waiting to be buried. He helped the impoverished in his city and elsewhere, and let's hope he did the work to try to repair his likely severely damaged relationship with the wife and child he was about to kill for, functionally, no reason whatsoever. That was an odd one. The lesson here is not to murder your family to satisfy your promises to strangers, but to make your agreements as clear as possible and probably have an attorney draft up an airtight contract so sacrificing your spouse and child is not on the list of deliverables. Also, this is a pretty obvious example of the Grateful Dead trope, not the band, but the type of folktale where someone does something kind for a dead person and they're rewarded by that person's ghost. We've covered this in episode 179 a few years back. That one, spoiler, did not end with the dark and confusing Judgment of Solomon thing. Next week, we're back in Armenian folklore, and we'll see that if your angry uncle is chained up in your dad's office and shouting curses at you, you should probably leave him there. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site and on Apple Podcasts. For less than the price of a manatee tea infuser, a tea infuser shaped like a manatee, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that won't make you feel like you're boiling tiny manatees check out mythpodcast.com slash membership or find us on Apple Podcasts for more info on the membership. The creature this time is the Hobia from Scotland. 
So, in the old days, a dog watched your property and alerted you of any approaching threats. What do you do if you hear someone shouting in the distance? Hobia, hobia, hobia? Tear down the hemp stalks? Eat up the old man and woman and carry off the little girl? And then those creatures are scared off by your dog? Well, you viciously kill the dog, of course. It's extremely gruesome, and we won't go into the details. I put them in the show notes. But the farmer killed the dog, and the Hobia made good on their promise and burned down the house and ate the farmer couple, carrying off their daughter in a sack. Yes, brutal. Deciding that they had just had a big dinner and should probably save the little girl for the following day, the Hobias, who slept during the day, tied her up in a bag and hung the bag in their house. Well, unsurprisingly, the girl cried all day, and all that crying, while a lullaby to the Hobias, drew the attention of a man walking by with his big black dog. He wandered into the cave where, finding the monsters asleep, the man quietly unhooked the bag and let the girl out. But the Hobias awoke to the bag hanging with a form thrashing inside. Laughing that the girl was trying to fight her way out of the bag, they opened it up to find themselves facing down the big black dog. The man whistled for the dog, adopted the girl, and the arsonist, kidnapping, cannibalistic Hobias no longer exist. Just goes to show that if your dog is doing its job, let it do its job and don't brutally kill it. I mean, that's the last part is pretty much true of any dog. That's it for this time. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>